0: the Owlish Folk, a podcast that answers questions about the English language. I'm Amanda, and with me is my Audible co-host Dave. Hello, Dave.
1: Hello, Amanda. Uh, what on earth does Audible mean?
0: Odable means able to be both smelled and heard.
1: Oh my God, is that a good thing or not?
0: <laughs> I guess it depends on uh, if you smell nice or the smell uh, coming off of you is a stench. Oh, so okay. it depends on the situation.
1: Well, in a way, thank you. Are you feeling better?
0: I am feeling better. Thank you very much. Uh, I apologize today if my voice is a bit squeaky, or more squeaky than normal, I suppose. Sounds fine. Thank you. What is the question of the day?
1: Ah, today's question is huge, but it is probably our most common question, our most frequently asked question. The question is, where do new words come from?
0: Uh, yes, this question is from, now I don't know about the truthfulness of the the person that emailed us, if this is really the person's name, but the question is from someone named Dick Dinkledacker.
1: Dick Dinkledacker. Yes. I can only assume our <laughs> listeners are uh, very honest. Yes. So... Mr. Dinkeldecker, we will attempt to answer part of your question today. Now, first of all, this is a huge question. And I'll quickly summarise where words come from. And then we're going to look at one specific part of this. Okay. So, words can come from a whole load of different places. First, a lot of words are borrowed from other languages. So, English has words from, um, of course, French, from Latin. It's a Germanic language, so it's got words from uh, surrounding countries. It's got words from all over the place. Uh, anywhere that uh, English has been spoken outside of England, words from that culture have also in, uh, come into the language. Words from Hindi, words from Japanese, words from all other languages. So English loves borrowing words.
0: And we do talk about that in our silent letters episode.
1: That's true. Yeah, yes, good point. Yeah, go back to episode two and listen to that and that will come up again in future episodes too words come from shortening or um, trimming pieces off existing words to make shorter words so for example lab comes from laboratory
0: or laboratory
1: gym comes from gymnasium but these are words in their own right now lab and gym Uh, functional shift so words that had one kind of usage changed to have to another part of speech okay so the word dust means a light covering of powder on something but also the word dust can mean removing the powder Mm. from something so it's both a noun and a, a verb a back formation so where part of the word sounds like a prefix or a suffix then we assume that the the part in the middle works in a different way so a back formation an example is um, peas peas is the proper name or the original name for the vegetable pea mm. P-E-A but the name used to be P-E-A-S-E and it was assumed because they always come in a cluster loads of peas peas was assumed to be the mm. plural so people back formed a single peas into pea I like that yeah Blends, so words being uh, smooshed together to form a new word. So, shortle is chuckle and snort. Mm. <laughs> um, we've got breakfast and lunch is brunch. Ah, oh, people's names can become words. Yes. Place names can become words. And onomatopoeia, sounds being uh, becoming words as well, a word that just imitates a sound. Folk etymology, where we have an original word, and then a new word that's very similar arises because it sounds more familiar to people. We make new words by combining word elements. So we we have um, like cycle and bicycle and unicycle. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then sometimes words are just made up out of thin air. It's a long list. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'll edit parts of that out to make it shorter. <laughs> all right. Anyway, so we're not going to talk about all these things today. Yeah, it would
0: be impossible
1: but, to. But I think each one does deserve its own episode. Yes. So we have a slightly more specific question related to this that we will tackle. Yes. So the related question comes from Norman. And Norman's question is really specific. Where does the word quark come from?
0: That does sound like a question somebody like Norman would ask.
1: (laughs) Knowing Norman, yeah, typical Norman. (laughs) So what is a quark? Well, a quark is a physics term, and it's not uh, unfamiliar to most people. Uh, Quark is a fundamental particle, and... Do you have something to add? A fund-a-part. A fund-a-part. <laughs> yes, All <right>.
0: carry on. <laughs> so yeah,
1: this is how new words are made, right? We take existing words and we mm. smush them together to make new words. Right, a fund part a fundamental particle. And that means when we break things down into smaller and smaller components, the smallest that we think we can break them down into are these fundamental particles, some of which are called Quarks. Quarks join together with other fundamental particles to make hadrons, protons, neutrons, which form the nuclei of atoms. And the atoms join together to make bigger and bigger things. Uh, But when you chop these things up smaller and smaller, the smallest unit, as far as we know, is a fundamental particle, including quarks.
0: So it's a pretty important element in physics, then.
1: Really important, yeah, yes. Are we going to talk about when they were discovered? I guess we could do, yeah. Okay. Um, all right, so quarks were discovered and named by a physicist called Murray Gelman in 1964. And he wanted to give a, a unique, interesting name to these, these things he had discovered. And the original word he was thinking of was quark. And he wasn't sure quite how he would spell it. Was it going to be K W O R K? Was he going to go with a different spelling? And he was reading a book, and in the book, it was a novel, and he found in this book a word, quark, Q-U-A-R-K. And it didn't have any specific definition, so he took that word to name his fundamental particles.
0: And that word was found in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake*.
1: So... I know something about fundamental particles, I know a little bit about where words come from, but I know nothing about James Joyce. At this point I am utterly lost.
0: let's start with talking a little bit about James Joyce and Finnegan's Wake and then we can talk about the quark in the context of the book. So, James Joyce is one of Ireland's most celebrated writers. He was born in 1882, died in 1941, and he spent a lot of time living in many places in Europe, especially in Paris in the 1920s with many of his contemporaries like Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald so quark is used in Finnegan's Wake and Finnegan's Wake is the largest of James Joyce's works and it is a book about the nighttime the dream world that's where this word come uh, that's where this word is found in this in this book so in the context this is how quark is used three quarks for muster mark sure he hasn't got much of a bark and sure any he has it's all beside the mark so in this context it's kind of a heavy discussion to just talk about briefly it's kind of impossible you could have a whole podcast concerning finnegan's wake but this is the first line of book two where it's kind of introducing uh this story And one of the reasons why Gelman liked it was because of the sound, as you said, you know, he was, he had the sound in his mind and he was searching for a spelling and he found that the spelling kind of worked. And he also liked the three quarks. Uh, I remember you and I were talking and you mentioned that uh, the particles of the quark, are in thirds, is that correct?
1: Yeah, they they cluster together in groups of of three to make larger Hmm. components of atoms, yes.
0: So he really liked that. And then there's a lot of other um, different ways that Joyce scholars have kind of uh, analysed this line. One is to kind of put an emphasis on the mystical number three or have the word quarks kind of suggest quart, or I'm sorry, a quart.
1: A quart. So in that case, they're, he's playing with the sound of the word, mm. mark, quart, and he's changed quart to quark to make it rhyme. Yeah, that's
0: right, because you have bark and mark, right. uh, and then quark would rhyme with that.
1: So it seems James Joyce was kind of playful with the language in this in this situation. Was yes. that like a feature of his his work?
0: Definitely. Joyce loved wordplay. Um, he had a knowledge of a lot of languages. He was always interested in learning more languages. And he notes that in Finnegan's Week, he used 40 different languages. He was just mm. a lover of language, a lover of wordplay. Um, and he was really known for manipulating words and playing around with words and languages in his works. And he creates a lot of words using literary devices like Portmanteau and automatapea.
1: What is portmanteau?
0: A portmanteau is a word that combines the sounds and meanings of two words. So, for example, Brexit.
1: Ah, okay. Brexit, so you have Britain.
0: Britain, yeah, exit. And you combine it together, smush the words together, and you get a new word. Same thing with sitcom, which is situational comedy.
1: Okay, yeah. so these are portmanteaus, all right. And this comes from the name of the travel bag, right? Mm. Which is in two parts to make one bag. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and you said also onomatopoeia, which yes. we mentioned before is uh, a word that mimics uh, sound from, from real life.
0: Like hoot for an owl. Oh,
1: okay. Hoot. Hoo.
0: And uh, Joyce also uses a lot of poetic compound words, which are basically just two words put together. It's a compound word, but they're very creative. There's a lot of the five senses going on. Um, And then also some comic wordplay, just playing around with different ideas and concepts. And we'll give examples of all four of them. Mm -hmm. Let's start with portmanteau, which we mentioned it's a word that combines the sounds and meanings of two words. So, one word that Joyce created that is in Finnegan's wake is unhappy tense.
1: Unhappy tense. So, for each one, can I guess what they yes, mean? Yes, go ahead. Mm-hmm. All right. Unhappy tense. Well, it's obviously related to sadness. Yes. Um, unhappy tense, and I think of patience.
0: That's a good idea.
1: So, people are in a hospital who are. Uh, sick so they're sad
0: well not quite patients, but inhabitants or dwellers
1: okay and then you would have the opposite happy you could yeah. happy inhabitants did you just make a word up i don't know is it already a word Had i'm used not sure i love it okay <laughs> inhabitants self-thought right self-thought thinking for yourself
0: Um, instructed by oneself or self-taught through one's own study, thinking, or thought.
1: -thought, Self-thought, self-taught. Yeah,
0: do you see the play on words there too? I do, yeah. So they sound
1: like something else, but they give you uh, a hint at their meaning. Mm. And I suppose in context, that meaning would be much clearer, right?
0: This is one of my favorite ones from Finnegan's Wake. Absinthe-minded.
1: Absinthe-minded. Okay, so you drink absinthe Mm. and you wreck your brain. Yes. Okay.
0: That's right. Exactly. Forgetful, abstracted, or absent-minded from the consumption of absinthe.
1: Oh, great. Have you tried absinthe?
0: I have, but the absinthe now doesn't have the high thujone levels that were present in the 1800s. So you're not really going to hallucinate as uh, people did when they were drinking it back when it was really popular.
1: So in the past, people would drink absinthe. And the chemical, what's the name of the chemical? Thujone. Thujone. And that would cause you to hallucinate and have weird yes. experiences.
0: I think uh, Van Gogh was on that when he cut off his ear.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. I've tried Absinthe, but I think, like you, it was uh, yeah. uh, an imitation of Absinthe.
0: I think in Eastern Europe, maybe in the Czech Republic, you do get higher levels of Thujone, but the alcohol is regulated now. You know, they're not going to produce some alcohol that's just going to make people trip. So it is, even though it's high Thujone level, it's still
1: pretty controlled. It's not high, high yeah. Thujone levels. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> yep. Uh, any other words that he invented in this way? Any other portmanteau words from James Joyce? Yes.
0: Uh, again, another one from Finnegan's Wake. Eye witless.
1: Eye <laughs> Okay. So this is someone who sees something like an eyewitness, mm-hmm. but they're kind of not smart
0: yeah yeah exactly a stupid or witless first-hand observer <laughs> okay i love that
1: this is really great yeah. so where where do these come from are they all from finnegan's yes, wake yes they
0: are yep and uh maybe in the notes section i can include the page numbers if people are interested
1: oh what a great idea okay. yes hmm. okay
0: so the next uh literary device is onomatopoeia. and one of the most famous words again it comes from finnegan's wake It appears on the first page and it is made to represent the sound of the thunderclap that accompanied the fall of Adam and Eve. It's a 100 letter long word and it contains the word thunder in 11 different languages.
1: Wow, okay, that's quite the feat. Can you say it?
0: I am not going to even attempt to butcher the word, but I asked a favor from Sam Sloat he is an associate professor in English at Trinity College Dublin and a co-director of the Samuel Beckett Summer School. And he has graciously agreed to say this word for us. So here we go.
2: Wow,
0: that is pretty incredible. Yeah, that's
1: very, very impressive. Yes. Thank you very much, Professor Sloat. Yes.
0: That's only one uh, 100-letter word that Joyce uses in Finnegan's Wake. There are actually nine more. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um,
1: They're all um, onomatopoeia? Yes, they are. Well, we're not going to hear all of those, but that is a fantastic example. What a, a, a creative and interesting way to make a word. So all the words mean thunder in different languages. Yes,
0: that's right. And there is one reference to the Tower of Babel as well, which is the first... Baba-daba.
2: Oh, Baba-baba.
0: Baba-baba. So he also invented a lot of poetic compound words. And these are just compound words that are very fanciful. They include the five senses. One example is from Ulysses, and it's smile-smirk.
1: Smile-smirk. Yes. Well, this is smiling, but it's not a proper smile, right? Yeah, it's a smirk with a smile. (laughs) Right, okay.
0: Um, Smell-sipped. Smell-sipped? Yeah. You know, if you have a nice frosty mug of beer and you bring it up to your lips and you're drinking it and you're kind of inhaling the, uh, the aroma of the hops as you're drinking the beer and you're sipping it at the same time. Oh, that's really, it.
1: yeah, okay. That really works. All right.
0: Yeah. And the last literary device that Joyce used uh, was comic wordplay. Basically, he just loves to play around with words and ideas that are related. Um, one example comes from the eighth episode or chapter in Ulysses called Lestragonians. Sandwich, ham and his descendants, mustard and bread there.
1: Ah, okay. So sandwich, <laughs> ham, mustard, bread. bread. Yeah. Okay. Just
0: kind of playing with that whole thing. Yes. Um, and the other one I really love, which is from the same chapter. What is home without plum trees potted meat? Incomplete. What a stupid ad. Under the obituary notices they stuck it. All up a plum tree. Dignum's potted meat. Cannibals wood with lemon and rice. White missionary too salty. Like pickled pork. Expect the chief consumes the parts of honor. Ought to be tough from exercise. His wives in a row to watch the effect. And that's kind of related to an earlier chapter called Hades, where Leo Bloom, who is uh, the, who where this monologue comes from, his mind, um, he has attended Patty Dignam's funeral earlier in the day in the novel, and he's just kind of thinking about this potted meat that is really popular in Ireland at the time. But what if it was made out of human meat? You know, and he's thinking about the decay of that because of the funeral. It's just, I love how he plays around with those, plays around with the
1: words. Silent green is people.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah.
1: Wow, that's really cool. Okay. Now, I said I'm a complete outsider to this. I have never read any Mm -hmm. Joyce, but I do know something about Joyce. Mm -hmm. I know that people who are into James Joyce... (laughs) People are really into James Joyce. Yeah,
0: it, it definitely becomes an obsession. Um, and unfortunately, I have become one of those people just from years of studying it. And, you know, I'm currently involved in publishing and uh, presenting in my little uh, James Joyce group. So, yeah, it really becomes a part of life.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you're a kind of obsessive because you never stopped talking about it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, It does sound interesting. It is the sort of thing I think I can't have a judgment Mm. until I've at least dipped my toe into the Mm. James Joyce waters. So I I was thinking of which book to start with. Mm. If I start reading James Joyce, where should I start? And I asked Twitter. Yes. Because if you don't know, Mm -hmm. you ask Twitter, right? Yeah. And I got quite a few responses, Mm. some really thoughtful responses. But some of the responses don't mean a lot to me because (laughs) I am a complete outsider to this. Mm. So it seems like the most popular choice for a starting point is Dubliners.
0: That's right, yeah. So Dubliners is Joyce's collection of short stories and they focus on four sections of an Irish person's life, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and public life. And, you know, since they are short stories, They're easy to read in the sense that you can read it from beginning to end in maybe not a lot of time, but you would have to spend more time looking at the annotated notes that goes with it um, and really thinking about all of the information that he gives you. So you could read it, you might not get it, and I don't mean that in a pretentious way because Joyce is really something that you have to study. A lot of people just don't pick up anything from Joyce. And just read it. there is some studying involved because he he really references so many books of uh, other artists, playwrights, musicians. He references the social milieu at the time, the political happenings. I mean, there's a lot in there. And all of these foreign languages as well. So, you know, there are annotated editions that can help people go through it and makes it a lot easier to understand
1: and this has got to be why people become obsessed right because there aren't that many books to choose from yeah. right but if you can read and reread and read again and always find something new and something that's sort of kind of a puzzle to solve right. it'll keep you coming back for more and keep you discussing and debating and arguing over the minutiae of the story or the the meanings and the uh, the things he's really trying to say through the stories.
0: And that's actually, Joyce is quoted, uh, and I don't know the quote of him, but he said something to the effect of, I've included so many enigmas and puzzles in my works that will have people arguing and discussing it for centuries to come. And that was his point, you know, he wanted to be immortal in the sense of a literary figure, and he has done that you know he has people ripping out their hair every day because of his works
1: do you think if somebody was known for writing fairly <laughs> mundane novels they could re- say that on their deathbed <laughs> there are so many puzzles in here people haven't figured out do you think that would get people to read their work with maybe a, with fresh eyes <laughs>
0: maybe it could
1: happen so uh, other things that came up on this twitter th- through the twitter responses include ulysses but people said that's kind of heavy mm. And some people suggested starting with Finnegan's Wake.
0: Oh, Just dive right into it.
1: Yeah, okay. So from that <laughs> response, that's not really the ideal starting point in your no, opinion.
0: No, no. I would say Dubliners, right. uh, Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, and Ulysses, Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess somewhere after Portrait, if I can mm. shorten it, uh, he does have a play called Exiles and some poetry
1: called uh, Chamber Music. Someone also mentioned some letters, like you could read the letters to his wife.
0: Yeah, well, those are a bit dirty letters, so I don't know if they're (laughs) really that
1: appropriate. Dirty letters.
0: (laughs) Well, there's no doubt that Joyce loved to play with language. And again, we have Sam Sloat giving us a little bit of his thoughts on the importance of Joyce's language.
2: When he was writing Finnegan's Wake, Joyce said that I've discovered that I can make language do anything I want it to. And while that's, you know, a little bit immodest, it's not entirely untrue that Joyce takes many different languages, all the languages he knows, plus a bunch he was learning and a bunch that he was plausibly fake it with, and melds them together to try and create something new, some sort of new medium of communication and expression. And already this kind of desire, but also facility to use language in a way to precisely express. We see this already in Ulysses, just even when um, Bloom passes by his cat while making breakfast and the cat meows. There's, you know, the way almost everyone spells meow, and there's the way Joyce spells it. M K G N A oh, he's really, really trying to articulate with the letters of the English alphabet how a cat sounds. And with that kind of aim towards precision, that's why he does something like Finnegan's Way, bring all languages together to try and create a new but precise medium of expression.
0: I love the way that he talks about them, the way he articulates that. And also I love the fact that he Gives one of my favorite words as an example, Murgnau.
1: Murgnau. And how is that spelled?
0: Uh, Well, one of the ways it's spelled, because there's many spellings in Ulysses, but M-R-K-G-N-A-O. Murgnau. And if you think about it, it does sound kind of like, you know, it's the Anomotopeia of a cat meow.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty accurate.
0: No,
1: okay, yeah, I can I can hear that, and he uses it several times in with different spellings. Yes, that's right. So I guess with different sounds and maybe in different situations mm-hmm. with a different meaning from the cat's perspective, uh, and that's from Ulysses. But Th- yes, that's right. Now I will start reading some James Joyce. I'm going to start with um, Dubliners.
0: We should have a little book club, you and I. Okay. The Owlish Folk Book Club.
1: Yeah. Members, too. You can be my cliff notes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can help me when I get stuck.
0: Don't rely too much on me, because even though I've been studying Joyce for over 20 years, there are famous scholars that are 70 or 80 years old that are still working stuff out. I mean, it's always a work in progress with Joyce. There's no one, if you meet anybody and they say they completely understand Joyce, they are lying to you. It's always something that you have to, you know, work on and you're figuring out new meanings and you're understanding something new. So I can try to help you the best way that I can with my understanding, but I am not the answer. So
1: the <laughs> more you think you know, the less you actually know, perhaps. That's pretty accurate, right, I guess. Then you read it once, you think, oh, I'm almost there. And then you read again and think, oh, actually, there's more mystery here than yeah. I thought. It's like the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? The more you learn about something, the more you realize there is to learn. Yeah. And... People who declare themselves experts are actually often the most ignorant of all.
0: Have you invented any words?
1: Uh, I have, yeah.
0: Oh, well, let's hear it.
1: Uh, I invented, well, I invented the word dilumbi when I was a kid. <laughs> dilumbi dilumbi yeah. What do you think it means?
0: Um, I don't know, but it sounds like a bowel
1: movement. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost related to a bowel, <laughs> movement, bowel movement. It means delicious and yummy. Delumbi, delicious delumby.
0: and you? Okay, so it's a portmanteau. Yeah,
1: so I used oh, to say to nice. my mum my when she cooked some dinner, Mum, this dinner is delumbi.
0: Did she like that word or was she offended? Once I,
1: offend, <laughs> once I told her that it's not a bowel movement, <laughs> <laughs> she was quite happy. Yeah. Um, and I like to use the word overpants. What is an overpant? Overpants would be trousers.
0: Okay, so what goes under the overpant?
1: Underpants but your pants are no I, I like to use the word overpants because nope. overpants go over the underpants now i call underpants just pants and you call overpants just pants but if we call them overpants and underpants and we give them a more specific name then no one's confused no one's lost everyone's life is that no, little no it's easier. more
0: confusing even now that you've recommended that well there is a word that joyce created connected to your overpants underpants and that's trousers
1: <laughs> What's trousers?
0: Trousers means two pairs of pants or trousers. So you would wear two of them, trousers. How is that spelled? T-W-O-W-S-E-R-S. and that comes from Finnegan's Wake. Now, if you are feeling uncomfortable because you are wearing new underwear, there is an old Yorkshire word, shiviness. Shiviness? Yes.
1: Shiviness is where you're Uncomfortable because of your... New underwear. New underwear that you haven't broken in yet. Yes. Shiviness. But you would call them pants. Your new pants. I would call them underpants.
0: Have you ever invented a word? Um, earlier in the episode, you said fundament particles, and I said fundapart. Okay, we'll write that down with your yes. name on it. <laughs> that's great. Fundapart. Um, I did not invent this one, but in high school, there was this one teacher, and he was sort of obsessed with smells in the room. You know, he could smell if somebody had eaten something the previous period before, or if someone had some weird cologne or perfume on, or unfortunately, if someone let some gas fly. And he was always smelling and commenting on the smells. So they called uh, him Dr. Fartner. Dr. Fartner? Fartner being Fart Hunter.
1: So I will start reading Dubliners this week and I will tell you about my progress. I'll ask you questions every day and maybe we could discuss this on the show. We'll talk about my progress and my questions yeah. and where I get lost and... You could have
0: can, a little owlet.
1: An owlet. Yes. Great idea. Okay.
0: Thanks so much for listening to us today and thanks again to Sam Sloat for all of his help.
1: So we do have a favour to ask of you. Um, if you like the show, then please... Tell somebody else about it. Share the show with somebody. We don't ask for any donations for this and we don't have advertising and we will never have advertising for the show. But we also don't have any budget and marketing. So if you could tell somebody else about the show, if you enjoy it, then that's a great way of getting it to new listeners.
0: That would be really helpful. and We would love you forever. Yeah. Hoot, hoot.
1: Thanks to Justing for the music. New media for the artwork, and a big high five to Jeff at Central Sound and Picture.
0: If you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe. You can contact us on Facebook and Twitter at The Owlish Folk. Send us questions or comments to theowlishfolk at gmail.com.